Well, good afternoon, just good afternoon. I'm Becky. I'm the other half of Paul and Becky. And uh, yes, I've been billed to come and speak to you about the heart, and that's what I'll be doing. I just want to confirm, having known Paul now, we've been married 27 years. We met in 1990, so we knew each other two years before that. Um, that uh, he is definitely a head person. I can just confirm that for you. He's not just saying it, it's true. Um, so anyway, I haven't got time to go into more of that. But in this session, in this session, we're going to be talking about how we deal with the issues of the heart, those issues that stop us from responding to the invitation Jesus extends to us to come. Because if we've been hurt, and all of us will have been in one way or another, those things can hold us back even when we want to say yes to Jesus and we desperately want to step out of the boat. In order to stop those things having power over us, we need to learn how to be overcomers in adversity. Now that's really hard work, but it can be done if we keep focused on two very important things. And the first one is that we must remember and we must rehearse the fact that God is good even when our circumstances aren't. We sang that great song earlier, you are good, good. He is good even when our circumstances aren't. God does not bring adversity into our lives, ever. The things that are hard, the things that are painful are a result of the fall back at the very beginning. Satan came and he twisted God's word and it's a trick he still uses today. And when Adam and Eve fell for it, they gave the enemy an open door to come in to attempt to steal, kill, and destroy anything good and anything of God in the world. And I don't have to tell you, Satan is still at it, and he's very effective at bringing destruction into people's lives. He is the one responsible for bringing pain to our lives, not God. God is always good, and he is always working to reverse the damage that's done by Satan. And that leads me to the second thing, which is that because God is good and he's always working to reverse the damage done by Satan, he can redeem any situation and bring something positive out of it. Now, you'll know the famous verse, Romans 8:28, and we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, it can seem impossible at times, but God can and he will, if we allow him, bring something positive out of even the most negative situation. And remembering that God is good and that he can bring good out of any situation when we bring him into it, that helps us to persevere in overcoming adversity. Also, keeping the big picture in mind is a big help. The Apostle Paul sums it up in 2 Corinthians 4 this way. He says, <clears throat> Therefore, we do not lose hearts. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Beautiful words. But you might hear that and say, well, that's all very well. Beautiful words, yes, but my troubles don't feel light. My troubles don't feel momentary. And if that's you, then I just want to say I know what that's like. Um, my story is that in many ways I grew up very privileged. I'm from St. Louis in the States. I grew up there. 
Um, I had materially everything I needed, and I grew up knowing God. Paul and I both grew up in church, but very different expressions of church. He was telling you last night he grew up in a very high um, Anglican church, and you know he carried the Bible and the cross, and you know had the smells and bells, all of that, um, but never taught to read the Bible for himself. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in the Bible Belt of America. So I definitely um, had no smells and bells, but I was definitely taught to read the Bible. And I was taught to know God as, uh, to, to know God and to know Jesus really well. We would have things like Bible drills when I was a child. So we'd line up um, and we'd have a Bible under our arm and we'd have someone say a reference to us like Galatians, Four, two, and whoever found it first was the winner and would get a gold star. And we had memory verses every Sunday. And if you came back, you learned your verse during the week, you came back on the Sunday to Sunday school, you'd get, you know, you'd get a gold star. And if you got a gold star every Sunday for a month, you got a little prize. So I was definitely taught to know my Bible. Very different experience from Paul. And I'm so, so grateful for that. I'm so grateful to have that foundation in my life. I was taught to know God, I was taught to know Jesus, um, and I asked Jesus to live in my heart repeatedly about f- when I was about four and five years old. So, um, so I've known God in my life, all my life. Um, so in that way, very privileged. Um, the other side of it is that my family had a lot of tragedy in it. My parents um, have had three children die. So I had a brother who died before I was born. He um, had an epileptic seizure when he was 18 months old. My mother found him smothered when she went in in the morning in his blankets. I do have an older sister, a surviving older sister. She was born um, nine months and one day after my parents got married. Very important. My dad always says the one day because they came from good Christian families. So um, my older sister, nine months and one day, born after my parents. She's six years older than me. Then my brother, who died at 18 months. And then um, my mother also had a stillbirth, but then I came along. And then two years after me, I had a sister who was born, and she got um, bacterial meningitis at six months. So she survived that, but she was left severely brain damaged. And so my memories of her, she survived till I was five and she was three. My memories of her were just, um, she couldn't do anything apart from swallow. So everything had to be done for her by my mother. Um, And so my memories are just her lying on the sofa, um, really having to have everything done for her. Um, and my mother being a full-time carer for it. Now, I know now, I didn't know then, I was just, you know, two, b- between the edges of two and five. She was rushed in and out of hospital a lot because her heart would stop, things like that. So my parents were under um, a lot of pressure, um, a lot of stress with that. But at the age of three, her heart did give up, and she, she died. So that was the second child my parents had lost. Um, then when I was seven, they tried again, and my sister Beth was born. And she um, also had epilepsy. And so, again, I was seven by then, and so through um, them discovering she was having seizures, again, I was just doing my, living my life, going to school as a child. Um, but she was, um, needed a lot of attention as well. I can remember my parents being very stressed about her medication and how it was affecting her, making her hyper or making her too sleepy and, and all of those things. Um, but it got settled about the age of three or four and she was on medication for that and she'd started going to a special school. And one night, um, my parents, you know, in America, you never stop having Sunday school. So you have Sunday school whatever age you are in America. Um, and so my parents taught a Sunday school class for adults. 
And one evening they were going to um, visit someone who'd come new to their class on Sunday. So they'd gone out for an hour or so, and this was quite normal. And they left me in charge. I was 13 by then. Um, and this night my sister was, um, my sister Beth was having a bath, and um, this was all very normal, and I was playing the piano. And what happened was that she called to me and said, Becky, I want to come out now. And I said, all right, I'll be there in a minute, you know. I was playing the piano. I didn't want to be bothered to stop what I was doing. But unfortunately, in the time between her calling me and me stopping playing and going to get her, she'd had a seizure. So when I opened the door, I found her floating in the water, face down in the water. So I had to, you know, panic, as you can imagine, pull her out, call the emergency services, um, and a complete, you know, just didn't know what to do. Got her dress, because I didn't know what else to do all the time. I'm praying, God, please don't let her be dead. Please don't let her be dead. No, actually, I couldn't say the word dead. Because I'm, please let her be alive. Please let her be alive. Um, and, you know, just called, and, and then the emergency services came, and my parents came home with the flashing lights outside. And you can imagine for them, they've already had two children die. They come home to flashing lights, um, came in, what's going on? What happened? What did you do? Um, so they took my sister off, put her on a ventilator, but she died three days later. So, um, so for my parents, this is the third child they've lost. Um, and for me, as a 13-year-old, you can imagine this was a hugely traumatic experience for me. Now, all of us had our faith in God, still strong, but, um, you know, trying to make sense, sense of it. So what happened was um, we just kind of got on with life after that. So I think my parents, I think now that wouldn't be allowed to happen. I'd probably have had to have some kind of counseling or post-traumatic stress um, dealing with that sort of thing. But then um, what happened was we just went through the motions. For me, I was definitely going through the motions. Just went through the motions of the funeral. I just completely shut down. Went through the motions, <clears throat> and then I just went back to school like nothing had happened. Um, and for my parents, I think they were in such deep grief and couldn't believe they'd lost another child. And they felt terribly guilty because people were saying to them, well, where were you when this happened? And things like that. Um, so we um, just, so our ways of coping was just to get on with life. And so I went on to school. I pretended it didn't happen. I just completely detached myself from it. Um, and that worked for a while. And it will work for a while to just shove it down, pretend it didn't happen. But it won't work forever. I realize it's kind of like a zombie, you know, if you like. <laughs> if you bury something alive, it will come back. So um, I buried it. I like to think of it as like um, a bin. And I think we all have a bin in our souls. And in that bin, we put all the things we don't want to deal with what we consider the rubbish of our lives, we put that in, and then we put the lid on tight. And that's okay, because rubbish does go in the bin, but if you don't deal with your bin, then it will really start to stink. And so, with my metaphor, if we don't let the Holy Spirit come and deal with what's in our bin, it will start to stink and it will ripple out into the rest of our lives. So I had my bin, and I put this experience into my bin. I put the lid on tight, and no way was I letting anybody touch my bin because it was too scary and too painful to do so. 
So I got on with life, as I said. I went to school, did well at school. I had lots of friends, you know, just normal teenage, good girl um, growing up like that. And whenever memories would come of my sister or someone would bring her up, I would immediately shut it down or I'd escape. No way was I going there or letting anybody talk about it. Um, I felt basically like I'd killed my sister. I felt so much guilt and so much shame that it completely controlled me. Um, I didn't know that because I detached myself, but that was the reality of what was going on. And it wasn't until I came to England in 1990 that God finally got his chance to start helping me to deal with this because I do believe that all through my teenage years, God was pursuing me and trying to get me to take the lid off my bin so he could help me and release me from the guilt and the shame I felt. But I wouldn't let him. So when memories of my sister would come up when I was having quiet times or in times um, that, um, of worship or anything like that, if a memory would start to surface or as I was going to sleep, I would immediately shut it down because I couldn't go there. But that was God trying to, trying to help me really trying to help me to face it so I could be healed of the damage that had been done, but I refused to cooperate. But when I came to England, I, um, things can happen often to people when they go out of their comfort zone, out of their normal experience. God has a bigger opening to, to do something. But when I came to England to study just for a term, I ended up living, I was just placed to live at Wycliffe, which were which was where Paul was training, and that's how we met. Also, I met the famous John Peters. And what happened was that in the first week of my being there, I was standing outside the phone box one night because we had phone boxes then, and I'd had to make a phone call back to the States because I'd been in a minor car accident before I'd come, come out. And I'd been, you know, someone had gone into the back of me and I'd had someone else in the car and I had a bit of whiplash in my neck and so I had to call the insurance company. And so John Peters walked by and he said, oh, hi, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I just have to make a phone call. I've got to call an insurance company and tell them the story. He said, oh, have you got some pain? Can I pray for you? And I said, of course, I was a good Christian girl, remember? So I said, of course you can. But of course, my Christianity never included actually being in the room where someone was going to pray for me. I thought he'd add me to his bedtime prayers list, that sort of thing. So of course you can add me to your list of people you pray for. But he meant, can I actually lay hands on and pray for the Holy Spirit to come and heal you? Well, that was totally new to me. Um, but anyway, so he said, great, when you finish your phone call, come find me. And I was like, oh, this is really different. I didn't know that I had to be in the same room with you for you to pray for me. Um, but, you know, I was like, well, I'm in a different country. I want to be polite. You know, let's do things the way they do things. So I made my phone call. Then I went and found him. He did a little interrogation, decided I was converted. And, um, and actually, I remember now, the one thing I said to him was, but I don't believe you have to speak in tongues to be a Christian. It's really interesting. And he said, no, you don't. But, you know, anyway, we'll talk about that later, he said. But we'll do this now. So... So what he did is he said, right, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. I want you to put your head, close your eyes, put your hands out like you're going to receive a gift. You ask the Holy Spirit to come because you know him. I didn't know I knew him, but I did. Ask the Holy Spirit to come, and now I'm just going to pray. God will come and heal your neck. Um, okay, so okay, I felt, I felt well, this was completely new to me, completely new experience to me, but I knew God, and I trusted God, so I felt safe with it. So I thought, okay. Um, so I did what he said. I asked the Holy Spirit. He asked the Holy Spirit to come. He 
um, prayed for my neck, and my neck got really hot. And again, completely new experience to me. So, oh, my neck's, my neck's hot. What's happening? That's interesting. Um, so I said, well, okay, well, let's keep praying. And as we did, um, for the first time since I was 13 and I was now 20, 21, um, a memory of my sister surfaced, and I didn't push it back down. It was the first time. I'd let the memory stay. And then I began to cry. And I can't explain to you now why, because I would have never let that happen. But there was such a sense of God in the room, and there was so much peace, it just didn't occur to me to shut it down. So I started to cry very gently, and he said, what, what's going on? And so for the first time, I told someone the story. And, um, and he listened to me, and he said, Becky, you know, even if you'd done it on purpose, you'd still be forgiven. And for me, that was like, oh my gosh, you're right. Even if I'd done it on purpose, and it was a light bulb moment for me, even though I knew that. I knew that in my head, but because I refused to look at what happened, I couldn't think of it objectively. So when he said that, I thought, you know, I do believe that. I believe that if someone kills someone in cold blood on purpose, but they are sorry, God will forgive them. So how much more me when it was a tragic accident? And so that was the beginning of my healing journey. And he said, you know, it's like... Um, a bit of broken glass, and it's like what you've been doing is you've taken this broken glass and you've picked it up and you've, you're clutching it because you feel you have to. It's like your responsibility to hold this bit of brokenness. Um, he said, but God wants you to open your hand and he wants to take it from you. And then he wants to come and heal where you've been cut and hurt. And so we prayed about that and... Um, that was really life-changing for me. Now, um, I was 20, 21 at that time. I've just recently turned 51. So it's been 30 years of a healing journey. It didn't happen like that at all. It's been a day by day by day by day walking out my healing with the Lord, but also moments of significant encounter where God has come and really met me and re revealed things to me and, and healed me. It's been both. And having gone through all of those experiences, um, there's just some important lessons I've learned that I find are helpful for other people as well. And the first one is, um, don't get stuck in a place of suffering. Now, who would ever choose to get stuck in a place of suffering? Only a, a masochist, but we wouldn't choose it, but it's so often what happens. And a helpful way to look at this is Psalm 84. And it, that psalm talks about those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, and that's all of us who are headed to our ultimate destiny with the Lord in heaven. We're on a journey through this life, and our destination is eternity with him. And that psalm says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Now, scholars agree that the Valley of Baca means the Valley of Weeping or the Valley of Tears. So I'd like to read that again with that in mind. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the Valley of Weeping, 
They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Now, the valley of weeping sounds a lot like a time of suffering to me. And according to this psalm, it's a place we all have to pass through on our way to appearing before God in Zion. The question we have to ask ourselves is, have we in any way set up camp and decided to settle in the valley of weeping instead of passing through? And if we have, why? Now, a big reason we might do that is just that we can't see our way out. It's the valley stretches as far as the eye can see and we lose hope that there's anything better ahead. So we decide to stop where we are, we hunker down and we just don't bother carrying on. And I think this must have been a big temptation for David in the years between being a shepherd and being anointed king and then being crowned king. In those in-between years, he was exiled, he was hunted, he was betrayed. Among many other difficult things, he had to hide out in caves and he was forced to feign insanity, insanity even to stay alive at one point. That was a time of real hardship for David and he could have given up on God. He could have become, he could have become embittered. Instead, we see throughout the Psalms that although he would have a good old moan, and that's okay, in fact, I recommend it from time to time, he continued to keep the faith, and he was determined to keep going with God. In Psalm 71, there's a great example. He says, deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. So he's quite honest about what's going on. He says, for you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From my birth, I've relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. I have become a sign to many. You are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. He's full of the, the praise of God there. He says, don't cast me away when I'm old. Don't forsake me when my strength is gone. For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say, God's forsaken him. Pursue him, seize him, for no one will rescue him. You can see he felt a bit got out. Don't be far from me, my God. Come quickly, God, to help me. May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. He was quite honest with his feelings. And then he carries on. As for me, I shall always have hope. I will praise you more and more. As for me, I shall always have hope. That's what David said. And it's an incredible declaration. And because he held on to hope, David has become a sign. He's a sign to all succeeding generations of what a life of worship and intimacy with God can look like. He understood God doesn't mean for us to do more than pass through the valley of weeping on our way to somewhere better. Um, we had um, someone in our church in the past, and he'd really struggled with depression. He'd been, been on medication for it, um, but he'd come back off, and he was in a good place, and he had this great girlfriend, and he knew he was going to go into ministry, etc., etc. Then unfortunately the girlfriend broke up with him and um, it all came crashing in. And I really felt as I was praying for him, God saying um, I, I, um, for me, a picture for me to share with him. And what I saw was he was in a cave and he had a choice and he was in a cave. I mean, we are all have times when we're in a dark cave, that's life. But in this cave, he, God was saying, you have a choice. It's hard and it's dark and you don't know the way ahead, but if you keep making the effort to feel your way ahead, 
I could see in this picture very soon he was going to turn a corner and there was a beautiful field outside, you know, with full of wildflowers and all that pretty stuff, butterflies, etc. So he just had to keep going. He'd get to that sort of promised land. But um, he had to make the choice to keep going because of his past experience of depression and things. He had a tendency to want to just withdraw and give up, understandably. Um, so I felt God wanted me to share that with him to encourage him, and so I did, and it was quite brave of me, because, you know, you don't know, if, you know, if is it just what I hoped for him, is this really what God was saying, but I really felt it was what God was saying. And, um, and to his credit, he really did make an effort to stay engaged, whereas he could have decided not to, not to do the things that were going on in the church calendar and other things. He did keep going to things, and because of that, he met his now wife, who was with us on placement for just three weeks. So if he hadn't kept engaged going to our international evening we had and some barn dance thing and coming out for dinner, he would have never met who's now his wife he has two children with and they've just gone to plant a church. So he had a vision for what his life was going to be. It didn't work out the way he thought. He could have given up, but he didn't. And he's, he did what he thought was his destiny has come to pass. So... Um, that point is to just keep your hearts open to hope. That helps you get stuck, uh, helps you from not get, helps you not to get stuck in that place of suffering. Because times of suffering, they're like this. When we go through something difficult in life, whatever it is, we are wounded. We're wounded the same way a soldier is on the battlefield. Some wound soldiers pick up are more serious than others, and some take longer to heal than others. But those that aren't mortal, that don't kill outright, they need to be treated so no infection takes hold and so that he or she is given the best chance to fully recover. And that's like the wounds we receive because we're in a spiritual battle. And when we are wounded emotionally, mentally, or spiritually, and often all three, all three go together, we need to guard that we don't pick up an infection, an infection that can spread from the wound to the healthy places, an infection like unforgiveness, bitterness, um, a sense of rejection, shame, self-pity, to name a few. And even if we are careful not to allow infection to spread, we also need to do what's necessary to allow healing to take place by not denying we're wounded on the one hand, which is what I did for so many years, or on the other, by not continually inspecting and focusing on the wound. And worst of all, metaphorically picking the scabs off it to see how it's healing. Um, so we need to keep, get that right. And that means we need to move beyond our disappointments and we need to get reappointed. Now, you know there's many ways for disappointments to enter our life. Disappointment can come through relationship breakdown. It can be through abuse, through illness, our own or someone else's. Come through tragedy, come through loss of employment, bereavement, unmet expectations, um, infertility, um, singleness when you'd hoped to be married, career not working out the way you wanted. All these things um, are common to us as human beings. Um, in fact, we know that Jesus promised us, one of the promises we don't like so much, but he promised us in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. These struggles are a part of life, and if we don't move on from them, we will get stuck in that place of disappointment, which leads to discouragement, which will lead to depression, which can often then lead to despair that getting stuck in suffering. But the good news is that Jesus didn't stop with promising us we'd have trouble. He carried on. And he said, but take heart or cheer up because I have overcome the world. 
God's always wanting to meet us in our place of disappointment and wanting to reappoint us. He's always willing to comfort us and give us fresh vision and hope. But we have to be willing to face the pain and make the journey with him. And that means we can't blame God when things go wrong in our lives. This is so huge for us. We have to get over the betrayal barrier where, we, where God is concerned. Now, R.T. Kendall, that great Christian teacher, preacher, writer, said, all Christians experience disappointment, but 90% never get over the betrayal barrier. We find it hard to move on when we feel that God has let us down. Now, if we don't allow ourselves to think that way about God because we're good boys and girls, we find it hard to move on when life hasn't lived up to our expectations. But if we're Christians and we believe God is in control of our lives, we will most likely somewhere, whether we admit it or not, hold him responsible for where we feel our life has gone wrong, whether we acknowledge it or not. And that's where the betrayal barrier comes in. But as I said before, God is good and he is not the author of pain in our lives. Now, I've really worked through this myself. Paul and I have two children, Rachel's 17, Joshua's 20. They're both on the autistic spectrum. Rachel's very high-functioning, very clever young lady. She's never had a friend. She's been bullied, Um, you know, all those things that go with being a bit different. Um, She's in a good place at the moment doing her A-level students are a bit more serious, so that suits her, Um, but she has her challenges. Joshua's just turned 20 on the 1st of May. He's on the, he's very low functioning. He um, is more like a two-year-old in a man's body. So we have to do um, everything for him. He can walk, boy can he walk, and he can jump. He can eat potatoes and crisps like there's no tomorrow. Um, But we brush his teeth for him, we shave him, we wash his hair, we wash his face, um, we dress him. Um, We have to do everything for him in that way. Um, He can't talk. Um, He can say crisps if you make him or squash if he brings you his empty cup and you say, what do you want, Joshua? What do you want? Squash, he'll say. So so life with Joshua is um, a a challenging adventure, shall we say. and he, he, he has other issues. He, um, toileting is a big issue for him still, 20 years on, um, and so on. So for, for me, um, now, see, I'm the heart person, so I react emotionally. Paul's the head person. Well, God's good. It's okay. He doesn't really feel it in the same way. He feels it, but not in the same way, if you know what I mean. I'm the emotional one. It's like, why, God? Why? You know, why did I bother to pray when I was pregnant? You know, all these things, if this is what we were going to have, don't you know, God, we serve you with our lives. Why have you given us this? Now, I can be honest with you because I I know what people are like, and this is human nature. We will question. We have to struggle. We have to wrestle with these things. We have to wrestle with the fact that, yes, God is good and God heals, and I believe that with everything in me, yet I don't see it in my own family, and yet I pray for Joshua's healing every day. So it's living with that tension of, um, yes, God is good, but my circumstances aren't what I'd like them to be. But choosing to say, but God, you are still good, and I believe you're in it with us. And because you haven't answered this prayer yet, you're working through it, you're doing something. And that's what we have to, um, well, that's what I've had to come to. We have to, 
We have to find our way through that, through the disappointments. Um, and for us, with Joshua, for me, that meant letting go of my unmet expectations. And I always said, I, like, I always like to think, before I had children, you know, you know everything before. Um, before I had children, I thought, you know, I'm going to be the coolest mom. I'm not going to have expectations for my children. I'm going to let them find their own path in life. You know, I just want them to know God. But they can, you know, I don't, I'm not going to insist they go to university. I'm not going to insist they give me grandchildren. I'm not going to, you know, I'm just going to let them be them. However, I didn't realize that I actually had loads of expectations. I expected my child would learn how to read and write. I expected my child would learn how to talk. But that still hasn't happened 20 years on. And so I've had to um, let go of those expectations, and I've had to grieve what hasn't happened that I expected would happen. And that's what we have to do. I've learned not to just put things in my bin and put the lid back on. I've learned I've got to allow, when I feel um, disappointment, grief, that is normal. We're meant to feel. And um, so when I feel that about my child, um, you know, we, I've had to grieve. And sometimes I still have to grieve because there's another milestone comes up and I see the people who are his age all going off to university. I've had to grieve again. You know, so each stage, it gets easier, it kind of gets easier, um, because you get used to it. But you have to grieve, you have to let go of those unmet expectations, and then you have to just accept and celebrate, learn to celebrate what we do have, to be grateful for what we do have. And this isn't always easy, but God is faithful, and he has provided help and support for us. And I know that through Joshua, um, having Joshua in our lives, we are far more mature people than we would have been otherwise. We're far more, um, well, we've had to really dig deep with God. And we've had to really seek God for what, how do we do this life of ministry and life of family? Um, both are challenging. And how do we balance that, Lord? What are you asking us to do? And how are you asking us to, to live this life? And he has provided, he's provided wonderful help for us. We have a friend who's with them now. Um, and she is a single lady who works part-time, um, very involved in our church and ministry. And she just is very obedient to God and just feel God has told me um, that I'm to support you, to me particularly, so that you can go and do things with Paul. And that was really hard for us at first because I thought, no, I can't do that. That's being a bad mother. And um, they're my responsibility, you know, I have to be with them. And this didn't happen actually until Josh was about 13, 14. So it's only been in the last seven or eight years that she came along before that. We were doing it, I was doing it. Um, and so she came along then and said that. And so we've had to learn also to accept help when it's offered. And that can also be challenging um, because we, we're taught by our culture to be strong and independent and not to need each other. And, um, but actually, God's calling us to be a family. We do need each other, we're a body. And her helping us, allowing us to do what God's called us to do is a picture of that, I believe, of how we all need each other. And we can't do what we do if she didn't help us with our family. And our children love her, and she loves it because she's a single lady without children. And so she loves having that um, connection as well. She grew up with an autistic brother, so she understands the dynamics. So God has been very faithful 
Um, again, it didn't happen until he was 13, and I used to pray. I'd see her helping other families, and I'd pray, oh, God, I want one of those. <laughs> For many years. And then I got the actual one, <laughs> which I wasn't expecting. So, um, you know, God is faithful, and it is difficult, and, but he is faithful, and, and we have to sometimes be disciplined to shift our, pers- shift our perspective off of what's not happening to what is happening. Because even if what is happening isn't exactly what we want it to be, God is in it, and he's in it with us, and he will make it something beautiful. And studying Job really helped me with that. And you will know the story of Job, most of you. And what impressed me about Job is having lost everything, um, he never accused God. He never said, God, you're bad. Um, He questioned and he complained a lot. But he never blamed God. And even at his very lowest, he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. And this, when um, the children were younger, was really a challenge to me. And when I read that, because it says, and Job did not sin in what he said. And I thought, oh gosh, how many times have I sinned in what I've said? Because I haven't always been able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord, um, and mean it. Um, But I have disciplined myself since then to do that to praise God and to say he's good even when things are hard. And because of that, I've developed much stronger spiritual muscles and God is much more able to help me in the battles because I'm trusting him through them rather than blaming him for them. And I once had a dream, this was the night before um, Easter some years ago, and um, about seven or eight years ago, as the night before Easter, and you know Easter is the big day in church, um, and that's when everybody comes all at once, and so Joshua was jumping, 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 which is what he does, like one in the morning, two in the morning, and I kept praying, God, please make him go to sleep. Please make him go to sleep. Don't you know tomorrow's Easter? Um, don't you know tomorrow's the day everybody can't, you know, Paul's preaching three times, whatever, you know, we really need some sleep. Um, nothing was changing, didn't, wasn't making any difference. And of course, I'm getting more and more fed up with God. I, I did ask, you know, how much more do I have to beg you to make something happen? It was really what I was thinking. But anyway, I thought, let's try a change of tact. Instead, because this isn't working, instead, I'm just going to sing, blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm just going to try it. And so I started singing in my head, blessed be the name of the Lord. And because I'm in church a lot, I knew all the words. Um, And so I went through it about two times. And about the second, um, about going through time, um, I fell asleep because everything had gone quiet. And when I fell asleep, I had this dream. And I had a dream that Paul and I were together in a little boat that you pedal with your feet, um, like in a little lake you see. And we were pedaling in this boat together. And I knew that in the water all around the boat were pirates. And the pirates were scary, and I didn't like them. But I knew as long as we were in the boat, we were safe. But if we went into the water, then we were fair game, and the pirates could have us. And in my dream, I suddenly realized we'd sprung a leak. And I shouted out, Paul, we're shipping water. And I don't even know what that means when I'm awake. But I said, Paul, we're shipping water. And, and uh, so we had to um, stop bailing out and bailing out, and bailing out. And then as we were bailing out, I heard, and I knew the cavalry were coming, cavalry, I always get that wrong, cavalry were coming to our rescue, because I'm American, remember? So the cavalry, the Old West, all of that, I knew we were saved. Because as the water was coming, I knew that if we sunk, then the pirates would have us. 
Um, but we're doing our best to bail out, and as we're doing that, the cavalry has come. And then I woke up, and I thought, well, that was, a, that was weird. And then I remembered what happened before I went to sleep, and how I'd chosen to stop begging God to make Joshua go to sleep and started singing a worship song to God and meaning it, trying to mean it as best I could. And then I'd had this dream, and I felt then that, um, I thought, well, there must be a connection. And um, I thought, okay, so it's like we're in the boat together. When we're in the boat, it's like God's protection, we're safe. But the pirates are in the water. So if we start to sink, the pirates can have us. So for me, the sinking was like things like feeling sorry for myself, um, so letting the water come in, choosing to get angry with God or resentful or just feeling sorry for myself, basically, and thinking, well, what's the point? Because that is my tendency. I'm a quitter, not a doer. So my tendency, my default tendency, when I'm not in a good place, is to withdraw and just say, I'll just give up. Um, but that is not who God has made me, so I'm learning to overcome that. But so I had to... Um, but I knew for me that was a temptation, and then the pirates, then I'm free game because I've given up and I've stopped believing God's good somewhere in me. So, um, but by choosing to bail out, we were doing the hard work that we could do, and that meant the Calvary came. And for me, it was like choosing to worship as I did before, even when I didn't really, I was, it was a choice of will, not a choice of reaction, of joy that I chose to worship. And through that, God was able to come. And I love that song we sang, um, Sing a Little Louder, because I thought that was exactly my dream. Sing a little louder, louder than the unbelief. Sing a little louder in the middle of the mystery. Sing a little louder. My weapon is the melody. Sing a little louder. Heaven comes to fight for me. And that is exactly... Um, what that dream was showing me, it was by doing my part of worship in the middle of the mystery, louder than the unbelief in me, choosing to believe more than I don't believe, and choosing to go with it, by doing my bit and worshiping God, that, that is my weapon, and then heaven can come to fight for me. And that's just like my dream. When, I'm doing, when we're doing the hard work, and it is hard work to choose to worship when you don't feel like it, it's a choice, um, to say, God, you are good. This hurts, but you are good. But it gets easier the more you do it, because then you have make space for God to come in. If you're kind of resentful, kind of blaming God, it's like he can't, come, he can't get in there because you've lost your faith. But if you're saying, God, no, you are good, I don't understand. This is a mystery. I don't understand, but I know you're good. That leaves space for him to come in and do what only he can do. And that's what he's shown me. And I just um, want to finish before we have some prayer with an image God showed me about myself and the work of restoration he's been doing in me. Um, and this began, well, no, began a long time ago, but then th my story begins when I was being prayed for at New Wine United about three or four years ago. And during the time of someone praying for me, I'd had a really powerful encounter with the Lord. And at first I didn't know what he was doing but because, you know, I've learned to receive it by faith um, without having to understand it. I just know I need to give him permission to do what he wants because I know now that whatever he does will be good no matter what happens in the moment, whether I end up laughing or crying or not feeling any at all, anything at all. I know afterwards I'll be better for it. And it's also important you know that in this encounter with the Spirit, the person praying for me never actually said a word I could hear. 
Now, of course, there are times when we need to pray so those we're praying for can hear us and be blessed by that, but equally, we don't always need to speak. We can let God do the work and the speaking. We just offer ourselves to pray and bless. Um, and we can be praying quietly. She was praying quietly, I know, and in tongues. Um, and in this case, this, this person simply felt God told her she needed to pray for me. She invited his presence to come and do what only he can do. And that's exactly what she did. And I was aware of her praying in tongues by, uh, under her breath, but otherwise she simply laid her hand on me, blessing what God was doing. And when we were finished, she just smiled at me and gave me a hug and left. Now, what happened in the meantime? As I say, it was a powerful encounter for me. Um, and what happened is um, after a bit of time in the spirit working, I've got used to, I can, you know, I've, I've learned to recognize the signs when God's working in me. I don't usually know what he's doing, but I know he's doing something. So I thank him for it because that's polite. Thank you, God, for what you're doing. Um, but this time I did say, God, if there's something you want me to know or understand about what you're doing, I, you know, um, you can tell me. Um, but you don't have to. And this is what I heard him very clearly say. And I know this sounds weird, but he said, Becky, I'm sewing your arms back on. Now, this was a, the third time over the years that I felt God showed me or spoke to me through a physical picture what he was doing for me spiritually. And the first time was again at New Wine, probably eight, nine years ago. After a full week of worship and being in his presence, I heard God say to me then, and again, I know I sound a bit like Frankenstein's monster, but he said to me, um, Becky, over the past week, uh, that he'd removed the duct tape that had been holding the two halves of my brain together. So I saw this image of my brain and this tape being pulled off the center of it. And another time, um, a few years after that first one, um, at a third-person date at St. Mary's in Bryanston Square, um, after allowing the spirit to work on me, I felt he said he'd been doing surgery on my intestine. And he said, I've stitched up half of a long wound, um, but that's enough for now. There's still wound to go, but I've done this bit for now. That bit needed to heal, and then he would carry on with some more. So that was, those were the three, starting with the brain to the intestine, and then the most recent one about, I'm sewing your arms back on. So after um, God had told me he was sewing my arms back on, he then carried on to say that I had been blown apart when my sister died, like I'd stepped on a landmine. But since that time, he had been putting me back together bit by bit. He'd been restoring me as I allowed him to. Because for many years, as I told you, I wouldn't allow him to touch that part of my life because I was too frightened of the pain to face it. But, in, but when he removed the tape that was holding the two halves of my brain together, he was reintegrating the part of me I detached from and denied in order to cope with what had happened. And that tape represented my attempt to hold myself together. But only God could reconnect and restore the two parts of myself into one. And when he did that, I was finally able to accept myself and believe that God wasn't mad at me and that I didn't have to... Um, carry this guilt and shame. My thinking could be renewed and I could then receive his gift of hope. Because once I was able to accept what had happened and to see it from his perspective, which I couldn't do as long as I refused to acknowledge it, I could hear him speak his redemption into the situation and I could begin to believe it. When he was doing surgery on my intestines, I believe he was closing up the wound in me that meant though I knew God and I was open to his spirit, I quickly lost the effects of his feeling. 
I quickly lost the spiritual nourishment he was repeatedly giving me. The trauma I'd experienced and then the guilt I lived with had wounded me in a way that meant I found it hard to retain the good things. I found it hard to retain the love, the joy, the peace that God filled me with when I allowed him to. And by stitching up that wound, God was healing me so I wouldn't so quickly lose the effects of his good works in my life. So once he'd done work on my mind and then on my innermost being, I was ready to have my arms sewn back on. He restored my thinking, he restored my spirit, and then he restored my ability to give and receive from others. And I always say, God is still restoring me. Uh, I say, I haven't heard anything about my legs yet, um, but then, you know, I'm getting used to using my arms and giving and receiving. Um, so that's a bit of my story, and I, I want to leave some, I could talk a lot more, but I'm not going to, because I want to leave some time for ministry before we have lunch. Um, and just to share a couple of pictures before um, we do that, and really, I, I don't want to go super deep. I, I do want to go super deep, because I want everybody to know the freedom that I've experienced um, but I also know we need lunch soon, and you know, th and it's often a process. But I do want to allow God to come, to just say, God, come and clear out our bins. And whatever you want to do, um, if some of us need more time, then to make that determination to carry on with God, you know, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, and do what we need to do for that. Um, but before I do that, um, this morning I really, and well, last night I had a picture of. Um, this, I'm not a farmer, I've never lived on a farm, but I could see this big piece of farm machinery that was churning up the earth, getting ready for planting. It was so easy for this machine, it was just turning the earth over. And it looked really like good brown stuff that you could grow healthy plants in. Um, and it was doing it so easily. Um, and then I saw someone, like a person, frantically digging themselves. And, um, and I kept asking, oh, what, what are you saying? in this picture, in these pictures. I think there are many things, but one of them was that um, basically God, you know, with God, it's, it's a lot easier. <laughs> um, he is like the piece of machinery, um, and I don't know if we're the driver and we have to allow him to do the work, whatever. Um, but the point is, it's a lot easier with him. Our culture, our society doesn't know how to do that. They only know how to dig with their hands. And they're desperately searching, people out there, desperately searching. They don't even know for what, but they're desperately searching. And frantically searching often. Um, and we can be infected with a little bit of that in the church. And we can think it's our effort, we have to do it. And sometimes we don't even know what we're searching for. We just know there's more. And there must be something hidden somewhere, you know, just trying to do it in our own strength. Um, but God's saying with me, like, it's just so much easier with me. Let me in. Let me do it with you. And then I also have this image of living on the froth. Now, I love a Costa Cappuccino, and I love the chocolate on top, and I love the froth. We were talking about it this morning. Um, I love the froth, but I also love the coffee. But I felt God saying that so many people live on the froth of life. They just want the excitement. They just want the bit with the sweetness in it, the bit of chocolate. Um, but there's so much more richness. But our culture doesn't get that. It just reacts and wants happiness and it's just live, it wants to live off the froth. It doesn't get the real depth of who God made us to be. 
So just with those in mind, and just thinking there's so much more that God wants to teach us about ourselves and about him, and it's about growing up, it's about being those grown-up children to get to that place of maturity with him, that um, we have a greater understanding of who we are, how he's made us, but we've got to allow him to come in and deal with our wounds and our hurts um, because, first of all, we're much happier when we can do that, when we allow him to do that, and also we're much more able to help other people with the things they're going through and point to, I know it's hard, but God is good, and this is what he's done for me. So with that in mind, can I ask you to stand, if you're able, and we'll just, we've got five minutes, and we'll just um, ask God to come. So, um, Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence here. Lord, I want to thank you for the good works you've done in my life. I thank you, Lord, that although um, things haven't gone to your plan in my life and in my family's life, it's not what you ever intended. But Lord, even in spite of that, you have shown your goodness and you are faithful. And I thank you, Lord, for how what the enemy means for evil, you can turn to good. And um, that is what you specialize in. So I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and just meet with each one of us. And we just want to give you permission, Lord, um, to begin in this moment to clear out our bins. And I know from having done this in, with lots of people that for some people in this room, you'll only, it'd be like you only have last night just take away rubbish in the bin. It's not like your, your bin's overflowing. You've just got a bit there because that's life. And we need to continually come and ask the Spirit to come and clear us out, to restore us, to refresh us, to, to cleanse us. So we keep carrying his fragrance. But there will be others who will have a bin full because of things they've had to walk through in life, because of things that have been done to them, things that have been said to them. And even when we know the Lord and know his goodness, we can think, well, I'm a bit ashamed of my bin. Um, or God's not actually, I'm not allowed to bring these things to God because he wants me to be an overcomer and this feels like going backwards. But actually God's wanting to say, no, everything matters to me. And just as I said before, when we bury things alive, they will come back. So Lord, if there's anything that you want to touch on or remind us of or something you've been um, for years perhaps for some of us saying, let me look at this with you, then Lord, we want to say yes to that because you are good. And it's really so we don't get stuck so we don't get stuck then. Thank you, Lord. And I just feel God wants to say, I'm just reminded of a lady who came to me in her 80s after I did a talk and said, can I talk to you? And I thought, uh-oh. But she said, um, I've never believed anyone loves me. I've never been able to believe people love me, even my husband. And it went back to a childhood memory. So, Lord, I just, um, 
I just thank you, God, that it's, it's your heart of generosity and love that you want to pour out. So I pray, Lord, you'd help us with the wounds we carry, with any labels or words that we've taken on to ourselves um, or heard other people say and we've owned them for ourselves that don't declare who you are and who we are in your sight. We just ask you to come and remove those and speak to um, each one about how you see, how you see us. Beautiful. Worthy. Of great value. More than enough, I feel he's saying, more than enough.